book of Genesis chapter 43, we'll start in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. If you're able to stand, please do so. Please give it your full attention. Uh, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that they may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward, or they came near to Joseph's house steward, and spoke to him at the entrance of the house, and said, O oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your father well? Of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. They bowed down in homage as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And they said, and he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out of hurried out for he was deeply stirred over his brother and he sought a place to weep and entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, how we do so desperately need you this morning. Uh, be with us, Lord, as we consider your great love uh, to all of those who are undeserving of it. Those who are undeserving are standing, sitting here this morning, and we are uh, being made aware, Lord, of just how kind you have been to each and every one of us. Uh, let our appreciation and thanks to you increase this morning, Lord, as we see 
love distributed to those who are undeserving. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less that you, you can become more. Give me grace this morning, strength and endurance. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you. Speak to us this morning through and by your word. We ask this for Christ's sake and for the good of your people. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 concerning God and Christ and his people that we love him because he first loved us. And that was certainly true in the case of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph I believe, had always loved his brothers. I believe, as I said last week, there was probably a a looking up to his brothers, in a sense, his older brothers. He always, I believe, sought their good. Even when he was sent by their father Jacob to be a type of spy, to examine their work and to bring back a report, I believe it was also even then for their good. But Joseph did not love his brothers because his brothers first loved him. As you remember, they did not love him. They envied him. They hated his young godliness. They hated the love that their father had for his favored son. Joseph did not love his brothers because his brothers first loved him. The scriptures say in Genesis chapter 37 that the brothers of Joseph could not and would not even speak or say shalom to him. Peace be unto you. It's a a common saying in the Hebrew culture. Peace be unto you. Shalom. Uh, They could not even say the most common phrase of the day to their favored brother, Joseph. Uh, Their hatred and their envy was so fierce and so strong that they were ready to kill him. Uh, They had devised two different plans, two different ways that they could do away with him. Until, in God's providence, they eventually sold him as a slave into Egypt. In the minds of the brothers, there was no reason why, why they should love Joseph. He has all of our father's love anyways. He doesn't need any more love. Certainly not from us. And yet, in spite of their attitude towards Joseph, Joseph really does love them. Really, when we examine and look at the life of Joseph, we see two great motivating factors in all that he is doing. And they are the two most greatest commandments. Love for God and love for his brothers. The Lord Jesus Christ said, when asked, what is the great commandment? The greatest of all, he said, you know the command. It is love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Joseph, as we examine this account, is 
is very much being a, a sinful example of this great truth. I say a sinful example because there is only one sinless one in the scriptures. That is Christ alone. And yet we also see that he is very much putting... Uh, his love is very much being put to the test. And he is also testing their repentance and their idea of what love is and how the brothers needed to learn the lesson of what love is. They had never really known what love was. It was therefore no surprise that they simply don't know what to do when real love is coming towards them as it was in Genesis chapter 43. You ever experienced that? I pray that you have not, but that you have not experienced kindness in your life or you know those who have not experienced kindness in their life. And so when kindness and love is coming toward them, they don't know what to do with it. The brothers are experiencing this kind of, of love in, in light of the fact that they are expecting danger and judgment and enslavement and thievery. And yet what they are experiencing is love and they don't know what to do with it. It's a gospel kind of love. It's a gospel kind of charity that is coming to them. And how important it was for them and for us to learn what to do with love, especially when love appears to be so alien to us. How they needed to yet learn what Paul would later write in Corinthians, concerning the greatest graces of all, 1 Corinthians 13, you may know it. Love is patient. Patience was being shown to them. Love is kind and not jealous. This was the kind of love that was being displayed to them. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And here we have these brothers being brought into the house of Joseph and they are taking an exam of love. To carry on from our last sermon. And they are being tested. And this morning we shall consider four points or at least four questions on their, their exam that they are being tested with. And hopefully we will learn the right answer this morning. Let's consider our first with God's help. Number one, love that is displayed. Love that is displayed. Uh, we have seen in these past few sermons, haven't we? That everything that Joseph has done, it seems to be motivated by, by love. Even when it seems at times, and it's not even seeming, it's very clear that Joseph speaks harshly to his brothers. And we might look at Joseph and think, and maybe ask, is Joseph just toying with these men? Is he toying with this men like a cat toys with a mouse? And it may seem that he's, he's like a cat and mouse catching these men only to let them go. 
and then catching these men and then only letting them go again. Only to finally catch them and devour them. Is that what Joseph is doing? One minute he says, you're spies. And just think of the, the kind of roller coaster ride that these men are going through. One moment you're spies. The next moment, is your father well? One moment he's saying, fill their sacks with grain. The next moment he says, put the money that they have used back into their sacks to make them look like they've stolen it. Uh, one moment he's saying, go back to your family in Canaan in peace. And the next moment he says, put Simeon into prison. Was Joseph just toying with these brothers? And the answer is no. Joseph purposed to love his, the, these brothers, his brothers. All that he was doing was, was motivated by love. Now, Joseph is exemplifying what James says in James chapter 5 and verse 20. Let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his ways shall, shall save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. That's what Joseph was doing. He was loving his brothers. <clears throat> he desires to forgive his brothers. But do you know that there is no forgiveness without repentance? At least from God's vantage point. Uh, there is no forgiveness without repentance. All of this love and goodness that was being given, it was calculated. It wasn't just random. Joseph was being used by God. To bring these men, these sinful men, to a place of not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow, so that they may turn to him in repentance. Joseph, all the while, is keeping up this appearance of a stern, harsh lord of Egypt. And all the while, and through it all, he is pouring love into their lives yeah. love so uh, so great that it's spilling over into their lives and they haven't a clue what to do with it perhaps the most moving display of love and affection in this chapter was the love and affection that was so clearly displayed for benjamin and do you see how the scriptures say his mother's son? Benjamin, of all the men who are there, was the only full-blooded brother of Joseph. Twice in the scriptures, the Bible notes that Joseph saw, in that same phrase, saw Benjamin. In verse 16, Joseph saw Benjamin. In verse 29, Joseph saw Benjamin. As the brothers are arriving in Egypt, they are coming. All the brothers are there. But the scriptures emphasize that Joseph saw Benjamin. His gaze was upon Benjamin. And in a way, we could say that Joseph's gaze in his sight has maybe always been upon Benjamin. That he has had Benjamin in the sight of his mind for a long time. 
I don't know if any of you have younger brothers or younger sisters or siblings that you have not seen for a long time that you love and that you care for. And when you haven't seen them for a long time, you think about them. You desire to see them and to be with them. Joseph has longed to see his little brother. He's waited for him. Maybe two years after he's found that his brothers are still alive and and that they're around, maybe the first person that he's been thinking of is maybe besides his father, his brother. How is Benjamin? Would they bring him back? Would he be safe when they do? And now he sees Benjamin. I wonder if there was ever a time that Joseph, in his eyes, in his mind's eye, in his mind and in his heart, I wonder if there was ever a time when Joseph did not see Benjamin. And now, if you can imagine the the emotion of it, now from his palace, from his house, wherever he is, he, he sees the one whom he has been thinking of all of this time. He sees Benjamin. Uh, may I ask you, brothers and sisters, what do you think Joseph saw when he, when he saw Benjamin? What did he see? Oh, when he sees Benjamin, the most obvious is that he sees a man with his brothers, his other brothers, who is in a desperate condition. Remember, famine has struck the land. Their sacks are empty. They are without bread. They are hungry. And he knows that he alone has what they need. He sees men and families who have nothing left. And these men and families, they are his brothers. They are his family. Nations from around the world are coming to receive bread. But that's his family who's coming now. When they come to Joseph, Joseph sees a fulfillment of God's promises. That's what he sees. He sees a fulfillment of the promises of God, fulfillment of dreams. You will remember in chapter 42, I said last week or the week before, there was a partial fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Do you remember why there is only a partial fulfillment of Joseph's dreams? It was because in the dreams that Joseph had, Way back in Genesis chapter 37, he saw 11 sheaves bowing down to him. And in chapter 42, there was only 10. And now there are 11 brothers who have come to him. 11 sheaves of grain, 11 stars that will come. And they have come at the behest of their father. And they will come and they will bow. God is at work. He sees God fulfilling this promise. And the Bible says in verse 29, as he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, the Bible says, notice, his mother's son. We're asking the question, what did Joseph see? Yes, he sees a man with his family that is his family that is desperately in need. But he also sees his mother's son. He sees Rachel's last son. 
He sees Rachel's last work on this earth. Delivering the son that will now stand before him. Joseph sees in Benjamin the, the woman, the mother who would have died giving birth to him. And I, I can imagine the flood of emotion that may have come rushing back to the, the soul of Joseph as he sees his mother's son. He would have seen Joseph or Joseph would have seen Benjamin and he would have been reminded of his mother. Let me ask you, is your mother still present with you? I'll say to my mother sometimes, and I don't mean to do it, it just comes out because it's true. I miss Kuka, which is my, my, my grandmother, her, her mom. And I will see in my mother, my grandmother, there are things that my mother does that are just like my grandmother. There are things that, that mom does, ways that she speaks, ways that she uses her hands. And I say to myself, you remind me of grandma. And I, I can't say it too often because it will cause tears to well up in her eyes. For some of you, maybe it's not a mother, maybe it's a grandmother. And you'll see a family member yesterday, and I, I, it, I told my mama, it made me feel awkward. I was standing with one of my uncles who said to me, you appear to have morphed into your father. When I'm talking to you, it feels like I'm talking to your dad. He sees my dad. And some of you, you know what it is to talk to someone and see your mom or to see your grandma or to see your, your grandfather or an uncle. You know what that is. Here's Joseph seeing his brother. And in seeing his brother, he sees his mom. And oh, what a relationship they would have had together. She was barren, you might remember. Rachel had no children. Uh, while Leah is having child after child, Rachel is having no children. And then all of a sudden, God, by His grace and His mercy, gives her Joseph. Oh, and, and he is the apple of not only uh, Jacob's eye, but the apple of Rachel's eye. There are boys running all around this Hebrew camp, this, this tribe of Hebrews. There are men running all around, but there was only one that belongs to Rachel. And there he goes, little Joseph. Their relationship must have been a special one. And then in God's providence and in God's goodness, God gives to Rachel a son and to Joseph a baby brother. And that baby brother would be the end of his dear mother's life. He sees his mother's son. Could even be that Benjamin looked like his mother. Let me say this. That Rachel is described as being very beautiful. Joseph is described as being very handsome and well built. We never hear a description of Jacob being handsome. But Joseph is. I wonder where Joseph got his looks from. Usually like most good looking boys. From their mama. From their mama. 
My nephew Moses is sitting right across over there. Looks just like his mama. Sorry, Mo. Tony. Handsome boy. Usually from mom. Tony, you're a handsome, strapping man too, brother. It may have been that looking at Benjamin's face brought back the warmth of his mother's face. Her kindness to him that he showed when all of his brothers were against him. He may have been shielded by mama. And now, here is Benjamin. He may even been, have, have been reminded of Benjamin's first name, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, and reminded that dad changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. He may have remembered how close he was to his little brother growing up. I have a little brother. Some of you might know him. The memories and joys that we had together as children. Uh, the times when I would be in um, our parents' room pretending to be Hulk Hogan while the music is being queued up for my little brother to come running down the hallway as he is being the ultimate warrior. The times when I looked out for him and watched over him I'm sure that Joseph could recall some of these memories of him and his little brother together. And seeing his little brother moves him to tears. It affects him m more than seeing his other brothers. He has to leave the room. It, it was so much that it brought him to the point where he could not hold it in. He needs to excuse himself. The Bible says that he was deeply stirred over his brother. He goes into another chamber and there he weeps. Commentator George Lawson has a practical application, I think, at this point, And it is this. Tears on proper occasions are no dishonor to a man of spirit and sense. It's okay to cry saying to the, some of the men that were gathered there last night in front of Louis's yard, it's okay to cry. It's okay. Some of them were saying to me, I'm just trying to be strong for everyone. Yeah. It's okay to cry. George Lawson goes on to say, passions are not to be extinguished, but governed. It's okay to be a person of passion. As long as your passions are governed. Joseph could not refrain from weeping at the sight of his mother's son. And we love him for the warm sensibility of his heart. He says we esteem him as a man of sense because he knew when and where to weep and could refrain himself and appear cheerful when it was fit. He knew when to cry and he knew when it was time to smile. He who never felt an inclination to weep is a stone. He who, whose tears are not in some measure under the government of his judgment is a child and not a man. Oh, isn't that great wisdom? And here it is on display. 
The brothers, they don't see everything that you and I can see. But what was happening was a display of love coming to them. Do you know where they are? Where were they when they were uh, getting ready to have this meal? They were, if you will, in the White House of their day. What a privilege. They were in the White House of their day. My brother and I, a few years ago, got to stand about a hundred feet away from the place where presidents of our country have lived. But we would get no closer. The servant of Joseph brings the brothers of Joseph into his house and it's astonishing. They're hungry. They come to him. They come to his palace. These men who have done so much harm to Joseph are invited into his home to have a meal. Let me put this in perspective for you. 22 years earlier, there was another meal that was recorded that these men were having. Do you know the the setting of that meal? The setting of the last meal that was recorded when these men had it together was when Joseph was in a pit crying out for mercy. And they were a stone's throw away enjoying a meal together. While he wept, and they ate. And now they are weeping. And he is inviting them in to eat. He loves his brothers as he loves himself. He's opening the storehouse up for them and he's saying to his servant, prepare the meal. They will dine with me today. And I don't know if you can see it, but I hope that you can. It is a picture that we have here of the Lord Jesus Christ. How eternally true is this for all of God's people? Do you know that he first loved us? We did not first love him. Isn't this our confession? If there is a flicker of love in your soul to him, it is because of him. It is because he first loved us, not because we first loved him. You come to realize that there was never anything in your, in my heart, your, in my soul, that loved him. And yet, there was never a time in his heart, if you will, and his soul, if you will, where he did not love you. Do you know that there was no beginning to the love of God to you? There was no time when God said, you know, I, I think I like Melissa after all. She's okay. I, I think I, I'll show my, my kindness to her. There was never a time in all of eternity that God did not love you. There was never a time that He ever began to begin to love you. He has loved you, the Scriptures say, with an everlasting love. And it's been hard to understand it and even to accept it at times, hasn't it? We don't know what to do with it, do we? 
We will be like the men in just a few moments who are bringing all of these gifts thinking, I I need to repay you for something. I I need to give something back to you. And you just can't. There's no giving back to Him something that is immeasurably unrepayable. Let me ask you, God in eternity past lifts up his eyes, if you will. And he doesn't only see Benjamin, but he sees you. And let me ask you, what did he see in you? Did he see that you first loved him? No. Did he see your and my obedience and goodness? Not at all. What's the first thing that he saw? I don't know if it was the first, but at least it was one of them. It was our fall. Our fall and our sin in Adam. At least one of the things that he saw was our desperate condition. The emptiness of our soul. The hatred that we had for him. Our envy of him. Our enmity towards him. Peter said to the crowd gathered there at Pentecost in the book of Acts, You... You, me, if we were in the crowd, he would also be saying, and you, and you. And when Peter says you, he also speaks of himself. We crucify the author of life. We did this. You took him with your wicked hands. We took him with our wicked hands. It's only then when God's people begin to realize, yes, it was with my own wicked hands. I crucified him. I slew him on the tree. I betrayed him. I sold him into slavery. I traded him for a murderer. Because the murderer most reflected who I am. I'm most like Barabbas. That's why I want him. But then he lifts up his eyes to us and says, but I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness and mercy, he's drawn you. And you know what he draws when he draws you? Do you know what he says to you and to I? He says, you, they will dine with me. I will open up the storehouses of grace and I will bring them into my house because in my house there are many rooms and I have prepared a place just for you. He first loved us. He is the one who first took steps toward us, not us steps toward Him. He extended His loving kindness. He extended His hand toward us. Could we not say of Christ... in an anthropopathic, anthropomorphic way, that as He lifted up His eyes to repeat His people in eternity past, that He saw us, that He saw them, and that in seeing us, in seeing them, that He sought a place to weep for His brethren. And I will ask you, where, where will the eternal Son of God go to find a place to weep? Again, I'm speaking anthropopathically, of course. 
how can the Eternal One weep? May I say to you, dear brothers and sisters, He finds the place to weep for His brothers in the Incarnation, in becoming like one of His creatures. In order to save His brothers, He becomes like one of His brothers. And when we look at Christ, we see that He finds in the Incarnation a place to weep in His suffering. He's there besides the grave, beside the grave of Lazarus, and he is weeping with those who wept. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is pressed down with the sins and hatred and envy and enmity of all people, and he is pressed down, and we see him there as the book of Hebrews describes with strong crying and tears. And he is able to save us from our death. He finds his place on the cross of Calvary to weep and to cry out in his death. And it's what the, the scriptures say in Psalm 69 I wept with fasting and bowed my soul. Christ sought a place to weep for you, dear friend. And let me ask you, will that not move your soul? That there was no other way to feed your or my famished soul. There was no other way to avert the eternal famine of our soul. There was no other way to give you eternal life. Except that it was for this that the Son of God found a place in his suffering to weep for his people. What love is displayed in the tears of Christ? And let me ask you, will you not come to those tears? To the heart that weeps them? What love is displayed in Christ? Here is love displayed. Secondly, and these will go a little bit quicker now. When the brothers had realized that they were going into this man's house, the Lord of Egypt, if you will, they are afraid and they have every right to be afraid. They believe it's a trap because of the money that was in their sacks. Uh, they believe that Joseph wanted to take their goods to make them slaves and above all to take their donkeys. That's still humorous, isn't it? Um, that the, the one who's prime minister of all of Egypt wants their donkeys. They have a bad conscience, don't they? They're guilty and they're almost even pathetic. They're reasoning irrationally. They know that they are deserving of death, deserving of punishment. And under Joseph, Zaphonaphaneah, they're right. Joseph is the wealthiest man in all of Egypt, if not the world. But these men are thinking irrationally. It would be like you and I, as we're talking about this White House theme, being invited to the White House. And while we get there, we say to ourselves, the president, he's setting us up. He just wants to take our Dodge Durango out there. He just wants my Toyota Tacoma out there. That's, that's, that's why I'm here. He wants to steal my, my hoopty out there. That's what he wants. Sin makes us irrational, doesn't it? And it makes us reason. 
irrationally. We can't tell the difference between love and hate. We can't tell the difference between cruelty and kindness, between sincerity and trickery. So in verses 19 to 22, they, they, these men try to preempt the situation. They, they try to, to clear it all up with a steward of the house. It's kind of embarrassing, but they immediately begin to recount the story and declare their innocence. Uh, this has all been a great mistake, they try to explain. They start to spill the beans, if you will. The servant says, after all of their explaining, well, you see, we, we, we gave you the money, then the money was in our sacks, and we got home, we couldn't understand why, how it got there. And the servant says, chill. Or, or in that language, he speaks to them and says, shalom. He says to them, these brothers, the words that they could not say to their brother Joseph, peace be with you. Settle yourselves, fear not. And how a troubled conscience needs to hear that. Fear not. Fear not. In the middle of verse 23, it's astonishing. He says, the servant says, your God. Uh, He says, Yahweh Elohim. He does not say the God of Egypt. He does not say Ra or any other God. He says, Yahweh Elohim. Your God. How does he know their God? He says even, the God of your father. How does he know the God of their father? And and it's almost as if these men have these blinders over their eyes. There, There are scales over their eyes. All the clues are there. Joseph is right in front of them. Now, I don't know if Joseph, as a 17 or 18 year old boy, had a beard. He may have been clean at that time. I, I'm 41 and I can't grow a beard. Uh, maybe he has better genes than I do. But Joseph at that age, I'm sure he looked relatively young. And here is Joseph still, as most Egyptians did, with no hair on his face. And they still can't recognize him. They've been face to face with him, eye to eye with him, and they still can't see him. All the signs have been there, but they are blind still. And now here is the servant of the house saying, Yahweh Elohim, the God of your father. And they still don't understand. They still don't get it. Your God is at work here, he says. And he says, God put that in your sack. Jehovah did this. The Egyptian steward was preaching the gospel to the children of Israel. Isn't this astonishing? How does the Egyptian steward know the God of their father? And how does he know that God is the one who is sovereign over all of these things? Well, we have just been given an insight or indication as to what Joseph has been doing while he's in the house of the Egyptians. He's preaching the gospel. He's making El Shaddai, Yahweh Elohim. He's making God Almighty known. And so should you. Wherever you go, whatever circumstance, situation, setting, wherever you are, make God known. And then he brings out Simeon. Here's your brother, untouched, unharmed. You will have 
lunch, dinner with the prime minister at noon. He brings them out of this seething His noonday sun brings them into the cool palace of Joseph. He gets water, washes their feet, takes their donkey, and gives their donkeys the best of food. He doesn't take their donkeys. He gives their donkeys the best of food. And in verse 25, they are uh, uh, preparing for the arrival of Joseph. They are concerned, what will he do? He's going to dine with them. Now they heard that they should eat bread. This is what they were told. You're going to dine with him. Do you see what's happening here now? Joseph is breaking down their doubts. You're just coming to eat. It's a kindness after a kindness. They've been expected to be slaves and they're treated as treasured guests. They feared their feet would be bound in chains. But their feet are washed. They thought they would be put into prison. But there they are in the palace. They thought they would starve. But they were given food from the royal table even. They thought the Lord of Egypt, Joseph, was a a harsh and austere man. But they are finding out that he has a most tender and loving heart. They doubted his sincerity but they will eventually in the next chapter be broken down with love. Do you see the application? It should be obvious. What you see in the gospel is a panoramic display, an eternal panoramic display of the love of God. And yet, how do we respond? Here is Christ saying, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. And we respond with unbelief. How many times have you shared the gospel with a loved one and they just, they don't believe? How many times have you shared the gospel with a loved one and you're giving to them the truthfulness of where peace is found and they respond with questions that are unrelated? They doubt goodness. They doubt love. They doubt sincerity. They they put limits on love. And we put in our words... Or we put our words, I should say, the things that we think into God's mouth as if God thinks the same things that we do. It's because the money was in our sacks. That's why I've been brought here. Do you see that? That's why all of this is happening. There must be some other reason for all of this love. He means what he says, dear ones. I desire to fellowship with you. They will dine with me. Love was doubted. Love displayed. Thirdly, love becomes delighted in. Eventually, this piling on of love upon love, kindness upon kindness, breaks down their defenses. It breaks down their walls and their fears and their doubts. But the law does that. The law works on our consciences. The righteous law of God makes us afraid. And let me say to you, dear ones, it should make us afraid. 
We have broken God's law. We deserve punishment. But the law is meant to drive us away from ourselves and drive us to Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, it is our schoolmaster. It takes us by the hand. It instructs us. It leads us to the only one who is able to rescue us from the penalty of breaking the righteous law of God. The Bible says in verse 26, and they all bowed down to Joseph. And what an amazing sight it was for Joseph to see these men bowing down. But will you notice that when they bow, Joseph does not ask them about the silver? What do they, why do they think they're there? It's the silver. What's the first thing that Joseph asked them? Not about their sin, which they think they have done, or not about the law. The first thing that Joseph asked them is, how is your father? How is your Canaanite father? Why would this Egyptian care about a Canaanite man? The old man you told me about, is he well? And then he says, and is this your youngest brother? The one that you told me about. Can you imagine their anxiety anxiety arising? Uh, he's asked for Benjamin and now Benjamin is here and you can almost hear thought bubbles coming out of their heads. Please don't take Benjamin. My father will die if you take Benjamin. Please don't take him. And the next words that come out of his mouth are, God be gracious to you, my son. You see, he's opening up his heart. This is what was in Joseph's heart. He's showing how tender he is. He's saying to them at the end of verse 31, Eat bread, eat, eat. They're in the middle of a famine. A famine that the world has never seen at that point. There's a, a huge shortage of bread. And their father has called them to go to Egypt to buy food. And here are his brothers sitting in the White House of Egypt, if you will. And they're eating an abundance of food. The finest of wheat. They will be drinking and being merry. While the world is in famine. The father said, go and buy us a little food. And they're eating for free. They haven't paid a penny. Joseph didn't say before they took a bite, uh, that'll be ten ninety nine, If you please. Sometimes we want to say that to people we invite over, don't we? Those who are just devouring our food, that'll be. And Albertson's uh, gift card, if you will. They are drinking and they are merry with him. And the scriptures say that the brothers are eating in the presence of the Egyptians. The Egyptians saw it as an abomination to eat with them and yet they are there. God has prepared a table in the presence of their enemies. And you will remember that when there were meals, they were meals of covenant. They would call them uh, covenants of friendship so that when they ate together, it was a bond that you and I are at peace with one another. It was a symbol of our peace with one another. And Joseph is extending that kind of kindness to his brothers. It was for reconciliation, for friendship to be restored. 
And let me say to you, and we'll find out more about forgiveness, there are going to be times when God is going to place you in situations where you are just going to have to say, I extend peace to you, even though I have every single right not to. Saturday morning, I was with physical family. And my attitude that I said to my wife that I'm going in there with is this, I am going to extend peace. And I had a fine time. I didn't bring up any of the offenses that I have every right to bring up. And I walked out of that place knowing that there is at least some kind of peace there. But I initiated it. Because I'm the Christian. Because I'm the believer. They're not. God will expect more out of me than them. Do you know what it is like to fellowship with Christ and to delight in Him? To come to Him in His time of spiritual famine with empty sacks, hopeless, desperate, afraid because of our breaking the law and to have Him say, you will dine with me. God be gracious to you. And we do that, don't we? We know that we've broken the law. We fear the worst. We are at the end of our resources. We know we don't deserve mercy. That we don't deserve to sit at the table or even come to the table because of our breaking of the law. We know that we deserve to be cast out into an eternal separation of God. And then Christ shows you what's in his heart. God be gracious to you, my son, my daughter. You will dine with me at noon. He's the bread of life, which we'll enjoy in just a few moments. Eat, drink abundantly. And we may be asked with the question at the end, why me? And God will answer for my own glory and no other reason. Fourth and very close or very uh, quickly, love that is double checked. Remember in all of this, we are still in this exam room. Joseph is still being tested and also testing. And then you will notice that he sets up the table. He sets up the exam room, if you will. He's putting the papers and the pencils and, and, and then he puts the names on the papers. Some of you teachers know what that's like. Putting the names on the papers. Putting the children where they need to go. Now this may just pass our kind of attention. But these brothers don't know that Joseph's know, Joseph knows who they are. And then he seats them in order of their birth. Now other than Benjamin... It probably would have been hard to tell who's the oldest and who's the youngest. These men, when they see that they have been seated according to their age, they are in astonishment. And the Bible kind of says it kind of passingly, but it does say it. They were, they marveled or they were astonished or they were amazed. They begin to look around at one another and say, uh, this is interesting. Reuben, 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, not that, on and on and on. We've been seated according to our birth. Now, for, for those of us who uh, are not good at math, I'm one of them. Uh, the probability, I had to look this up, of taking these 11 men and randomly seating them in their proper order of birth is a 1 in 40 million opportunities, chances, times. If you were to take these 11 men and, and not know them and try to place them in their proper order, it would take you 40 million times to get this right. That's why they're amazed. They have no idea he knows who they are, and now they're sitting in their proper order. Are they not blind? It's another uh, indication. They are completely blind that God is in the midst of them. And they're just thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is uh, amazing. And here is Joseph saying, I'm sure it is. Guys, But there is another test because Joseph feeds Benjamin. They're all fed. If you can imagine this, uh, going to your Thanksgiving dinner or your Christmas dinners and maybe mom is serving everyone. Sometimes moms do that. And as the food is being distributed, uh, this happens sometimes when in my family, as food was being distributed... Uh, the plates are being handed over and handed out and you're looking at plates and you're saying this is going to be this that looks good i can't wait for my wow that looks good she made that this year that's wonderful and, and you see the plates that are coming and then as your plate comes you get a small little portion and you're looking around at everyone else's portion and you're saying mom what gives uh, why did isaiah get more than me this year Well, here is Benjamin amongst his brothers and he's being served. And everyone gets their plate. And then here comes Benjamin's plate. And they're all eating. And the server walks past all the men and gives Benjamin another plate. And the men are kind of like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe our second plate's coming next. And then the servant walks past the men again with another plate. All the men... And Benjamin does not have one plate, but now he has two, and then now he has three. I don't know how many plates that would be, but it was five times the amount of every other man, of every other man. Uh, Benjamin's uh, cup runneth over, if you will. And here are all of the men now placed in another situation where the youngest is being favored once again by someone who is ruling. What will they do? Here is Benjamin. They've been through this before, haven't they? Maybe some of them might have been scratching their heads uh, to the point of, of, of bleeding. I've seen this before. There was a younger brother that I had before who was given a special kind of favor. And we all know what happened to him. Guess who's setting this up? Joseph is saying, uh, does this look familiar? We, we do all know what happened to him, don't we? Let's see if you remember. And let's see if you're going to do it again. What you did to him. 
It's a replay of the scene. Here's the blessing. It appears that they this time are not envious. That they've learned their lesson because they all eat and they all drink. They're all happy together. But the exam is not over. He gives them an opportunity, a perfect opportunity. And let me say this. There are two things that you need to commit an outward sin. Here they are. Ready? A desire and an opportunity. In order for sin to be acted upon, there needs to be a desire for it and an opportunity to act upon it. Many of God's people should thank God that when there was a desire, there was no opportunity. And when there was an opportunity, there was no desire. But when you have the desire and the opportunity, that is a deadly, deadly, deadly combination. And here, if there is any envy lurking in their hearts, if there is any hatred in their hearts, Joseph has given them the perfect opportunity to throw the last son of Rachel into the pit. Joseph will say in the next chapter, fill their sacks and take my silver cup, the one that I drink out of, and put it in that boy's sack. And let's see what they do with him. When they're out of my presence, let's see what they do with him. And they did according to the word of Joseph. The final exam for repentance we will see next time, next week. When we think of the Lord's Supper, though, can we not see love displayed? He took bread. He broke it. It was his body. And he said, eat. He took the cup. It was his blood. And he says, drink. What love is displayed here at the Lord's Supper? And yet there is times when we doubt love that is portrayed here and displayed here, isn't there? Maybe because of a guilty conscience or confusion or fears that we might have. We might say, I'm not worthy to come to the table. Lest we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. But he comes and speaks kindly to us. He comes and he prepares a meal for us. He, he breaks us down with his love and his words of grace. Come and dine with me. Uh, peace is available to you. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to the only one who can give you peace. He prepares bread and a drink and calls us to do this in remembrance of Him. And when we do, to delight in Him, uh, to find peace in Him, to find shalom in Him, He's with you. Christ is the bread of life that satisfies us. His sufferings are the bread and food for you and my, and my soul. You're in my soul. And as we sit together at His table, all envy disappears. All jealousy disappears. Not at the fact of our placement, not, not looking at where is he seating or, or sitting and where is she sitting. 
but that we are even at the table. One day, you and I will join our brother Louis. And when God, in His wisdom and providence, determines to enact His promise of fulfilling the creation of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, we may sit right across from Louis, or he may be way down the table. But here's what we will rejoice in, that we're all there. Because Christ has displayed his love to undeserving sinners. Let's pray.